When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and my good friend, Danny of Deljabar. What's up, brother? How are you? Chilling, man, as per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. Um, thank you for joining me today, and thank you all for listening. Welcome to the show. Um, I guess we should just, uh, we did a little bit of banter prior to, in, in like our pre-warm-up mode so I guess we should just get right to the episode, right? Yep. And if you're interested in hearing the nonsense that we were talking about before, you can uh, support us on Patreon where we'll be releasing exclusive content like our weird banter. <laughs> um, yeah. What we were talking about before was completely incoherent and probably <laughs> cannot be considered a rational thought, but these types of warmups are necessary to get into the flow of things. Yeah, but um, I guess what we're trying to do is the last four episodes that we did all were related to China in some way or another, and it's kind of uncharted territory really for us. We've only done a handful of episodes on China prior to the four we just did, mm-hmm. and it all started off by doing an episode on the Uyghurs, just seeing who these Uyghurs were. Um, what's going on with these re-education camps, exploring, you know, the the bad things the Chinese government is doing. But ultimately, we were, we, we were debunking the notion that China is some unified state. So we, and it's one ethnicity or one culture, things like that. And that's what we learned doing, you know, doing the research for the Uyghurs. And, and we kind of found it, you know, almost interesting, but kind of necessary to talk about you know, what was the invention of the Chinese people and how it related to, you know, the situation with the Uyghurs in the end. And that turned into like a a little mini series, if you will, where we explored, you know, the ancient history of China, you know, followed by, you know, some of the middle periods in the the Qin dynasty that ultimately unified China. And, you know, uh, we capped it off with an episode about Mao uh, and the cultural revolution. And and it got us really thinking, you know, it, it was like, we, we talk a lot on this show about what is a nation and like, how are they born? And so I think what we've decided to do is, is try out a new theme uh, where we're going to talk a little bit about what makes a nation, like how are they built? How are they formed? And, you know, we're going to pick a couple of, of countries to kind of do some case studies for. And over the next couple episodes, we'll do case studies for specific countries um, and and just see what we can learn, you know? This is more of an exploration rather than some, like, definitive podcast on, you know, what a nation state is. Like, we're doing this to um, not only just indulge in 
this academic pursuit. I mean, I, I feel kind of, I feel like a lame saying academic pursuit, but <laughs> we are doing it for our own indulgences. But um, I figure it'd be fun for people to listen to us as we really kind of just um, brainstorm, like what, what is a nation state while using actual countries as case studies. And we're going to be starting off with Japan. Um, we also were talking about doing one on Russia and then doing one on Germany as well. But we're going to start off with Japan um, because Danny and I already have a pretty good base knowledge of Japanese history. So we figured it would be a pretty, um, it, it would be a good starting point, at least for this type of episode. What makes Japan so unique is that it, there's really no other country like Japan in the world. There's no other country that has even a remotely similar type of history than Japan. It's, it's defined by a lot of really unique circumstances. And one of the main circumstances that pops up in my mind right away is Japan's ability to close the doors and open the doors when they want, yep. which has shaped a lot of Japanese culture, their ability to isolate themselves from the rest of the world. And or then they're trade. in the completely opposite way, their ability to just straight up sponge off of their neighbors. I think the geography is a huge, huge part about it, not just because they're an island, but because of like how the island is made up, you know, um, there are so many very unique things about this and, and it's going to be fascinating. And, and the first thing that popped up into my mind was, you know, I wanted to explore this idea, this notion that Japan is like this or was this secluded island nation and they're, that they were their own little thing and, you know, they're special, which they are special. Um, but what I learned in doing the research is that <clears throat> actually they're they're very heavily influenced by a lot of other people, uh, a lot of other people's and their you know ethnic makeup and their demographics and the creation of their peoples um, are is is just fascinating and and I can't wait to to talk about it. Well, let's start off with the geography. So, Japan is an island nation. is predominantly four island, main islands surrounded by a bunch of smaller islands. Mm-hmm. The main geographic characteristic of Japan that really shaped its political culture. One, well, there's two of them. One, it's an island. Mm-hmm. And then two, it's mountainous. So and three, it's volcanic. I would, three, I would it's volcanic. And then right. four, it's on about four Teutonic plants and has earthquakes all the time. Tectonic plates. Yeah. Tectonic mm-hmm. plates. So it has a lot of disadvantages and also advantages. The advantage, obviously, is that it can protect itself from foreign invaders. And you'll right. see that in the future. Um, the disadvantage they really don't have any natural resources. Right, or limited natural resources. Or limited. Um, another advantage is that they have ex- extremely fertile soil. Huge. So great on agriculture. Yeah. A disadvantage, it's so mountainous. All the populations are pushed into um, about small four pockets. <laughs> small pockets, these small plains areas, and these areas are just heavily populated and heavily crowded. So this country also experiences absolutely terrible, probably the worst in the world, natural disasters. So we're talking about earthquakes that kill 100,000 people. Uh, we're talking about tsunamis. 
Mm-hmm. Just the worst natural disasters probably any area in the world really receives on a consistent basis is in Japan. Now you don't the death toll isn't as high as it, they were in the 1920s when 100,000 people died in an earthquake. Death is mitigated just due to the technological advancements they've made over the past 50 years. Right. But I guess um a good point to start off um is the creation myth, right? There's always yeah. every every good nation has a nice little creation story. So I want yep. to hear what Japan's creation myth is. Uh, or this one, yeah, this one's fun. Who knows if it's myth? Well, yeah, who knows? You know. Um, so, so this one, this one's interesting. Uh, it, I'm gonna dumb it down. Um, it's a, it's an interesting story, and I, I definitely recommend reading uh, a lot of these creation myths. Um, but this one in particular had me lolling uh, or laughing out loud. Um, so you've got these two deities in heaven. There's apparently many of them. This part I don't understand very well. Um, but the two that we're talking about are Izanagi and Izanami. Um, Izanagi is the guy. Izanami is the girl. Um, and so Izanagi, apparently, he dips his spear into the, you know, the the waters. And that's how he creates the land. It basically drips off of his spear and coagulates into land. And presumably that land is Japan. Uh, and then they go down to the land to like populate it and there's also this bit i think izanagi and izanami are, are brother and sister there's a lot of incest in the story so you're just gonna have to try and follow along um, every every mythology is riddled with incest yeah it's it's a, it's a ton of it um and then so so they go down to the land they go to populate it and they have a bunch of kids right but um part of this you know they have a bunch of this divine offspring and and they're kind of birthed in interesting ways. Like there's definitely like regular vaginal birth, but like some of it would like come out of their nose or like come out of their eyes or like their hands or weird shit. Um, but the one uh, very important birth was the God of Fire. When the God of Fire was born, it was a vaginal birth and it burned um, Izanami alive and she died from it. Um, and as a result, Izanagi goes down to the underworld to bring Izanami back, but she was all like dead and crusty and shit. <laughs> so that didn't work out too well. <laughs> um, and so Izanami, Izanagi gets back and he like washes himself off in a river because he smells like death. Uh, and then from this action of washing himself off, apparently a bunch more deities were created. <clears throat> uh, and two of the main ones that were created were Amaterasu, which is the sun goddess, and Suzano'o, which is the storm or the sea god. And so we kind of set up this like dichotomy right this like sun worshiping dichotomy this is like super common uh among uh a lot of religions not just uh eastern ones um but uh amaterasu is mostly seen this is where it gets a little different from like western religions so amaterasu is seen as like um as the main or good deity whereas suzuno is seen as like the bad one kind of but it's not that cut and dry uh, and mostly it's because all of the deities in this creation myth have like good and bad qualities. And the texts for these, you know, creation myths, they don't really, they don't really assign like a moral, you know, code or they, they don't put morality behind the actions of these, uh, uh, behind the, the, the deities. Uh, as an example, uh, Susan Oo, He's, he's pretty much a dick. Like if you, if you read the shit that he does, he like annoys the shit out of people, right? Specifically, he annoys Amaterasu. 
and um and, and a bunch of the other like deity gods and basically rather than calling him like evil or something like that or like attributing his bad actions as evil he, they just banish him they're like hey, he's a pain in the ass let's just kick him out <laughs> like that's that's the way that they 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 approach it it's like very pragmatic um and you know it, the rule of thumb for these uh particular myths is that the morality isn't there right it's totally circumstantial you know, it's not like rules etched into stone, like, you know, Judaism or something like that, right? It's not the Ten Commandments. It's more like, eh, you know, he was a pain in the ass, but, you know, it's because, you know, this and that reason, you know? So I think this 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 definitely plays a part in, in present-day Japanese culture. It's, it's very circumstantial. They have very fluid, um, uh, fluid moral codes. Uh, and it, it's, it's an interesting bit. And the reason why... I, I, I liked these stories is because of, because of that one particular issue. Now, if you read them, all of the myths from the period are brutal as fuck. <laughs> They're like Brothers Grimm style shit, right? Um, there's this one bit where uh, one of the deities uh, is getting picked on and two of the deities split a tree in half and put a wedge in it. And then they stick him in the tree and take the wedge out so that it smushes him and kills him. They also killed the same deity like 12 times or something like that. And he keeps getting reincarnated and they just keep killing him in different brutal ways. And it's like really funny in, in one way, but it's also kind of like gory and strange. Um, definitely interesting read. Definitely would uh, uh, either, you know, either pick up some of the texts for it or just like watch a couple of YouTube videos. Some of them are really hilarious when they animate them. Um, but kind of uh, back to the original bits, um, these deities, uh, they eventually start having offspring of their own and apparently this great great grandson of um of amaterasu uh his name was jimu uh becomes the first ruler of japan right so this is like the the line here and all of this by the way was recorded in uh the kojiki which is the record of ancient things in 712 uh or uh, also it's in the uh, nihongi which is the chronicles of japan in 720 um, and this was a way for the emperors of the time to legitimize themselves, right? Specifically, Temu, who was the emperor, um, and to you know basically make them say that oh they come from a divine family. And what's interesting, I think, about this is the the lack of a distinction between these deities like Amaterasu and like you know uh, and Susanoo uh, and men people, right? They're they're not they're not distinctly different. In, in any real meaningful way other than like the, you know, the magical shit that happens. And so you could kind of say that all the Japanese people can claim divine descendants, um, but specifically the emperors claim that like super special lineage coming from Amaterasu, um, the sun goddess. And so I think the idea of legitimizing rulership as divine is definitely not new for the show. You know, we've seen this sprung up a, a ton of times, you know, in almost every ancient people's creation myths so it's kind of like the same um there's a divine right aspect like in western europe like you rule by but in this case you're not in western europe or europe you know you're ruling on behalf of god it's your divine right to rule on behalf of right. you know the kingdom of heaven but in this case you are actually a descendant of the god right there is not a um there's not a distinction between God and man. Nope. Nope. So, so Emperor it's actually Hirohito much, is... much more similar to say ancient Egypt where, where the Pharaohs claim to literally be descendant of the gods rather than 
you know, European, which is where they, they claim to be emissaries of God, you know, or like claim divine, you know, uh, uh, rulership because of gods. Um, so it's, it's super, it's very, very close to, to like ancient Egypt or ancient Mesopotamian, um, ancient Akkadian, things like that. Like they're, they are the gods. It's so interesting how all these different civilizations have very similar origin stories. Yeah. You think that they would be different as far as at least the, uh, there's always a linkage back to some divine being, some divine creator. Yeah. And, I mean, shit, uh, the, Egypt is uh, practically on the other side of the fucking planet as Japan, you know? Uh, and yet the creation myths share a lot of the same, you know, tropes. Well, let's talk about the people who first inhabited Japan. So yeah. no one really knows when to pinpoint the start of, of humans in Japan. And it really could be anywhere from 500,000 years ago to 30,000 years ago, um, which is quite the spread. Yeah. And it's important to note that prior to World War II, Japanese archaeologists don't really give you a clear picture of, of Japan's uh, prehistoric past because they would interpret their findings in line with the pseudo-historical accounts from ancient Japanese mythology. We do know the first definitive human fossils, they date back around 30,000 years ago. But even that's a long time ago. And something about Japan is that they have volcanic soil and it eats up skeletons. So yep. we don't really... It's un, it's unclear based off things that I've read. Mm -hmm. Super unclear. And I think a general agreement, though, about Japan's human origins is... is is that they they all walked over a land bridge to get there. Right? Land bridge? <laughs> land bridge. <laughs> What's a land bridge? Well, in this context, not in the... Uh, the real context of what a land bridge is. In the real is. context of a land bridge, um, it's a, a little bit of science for you. In the in, Up until the last glacial maximum or ice age, uh, about 15,000 years ago, the water levels were trapped up. The water was trapped up in icebergs, right, in, on the poles. And so the water levels across the world were much lower than they were. And so as a result, places that appear to be islands like Japan and stuff like that were actually just like peninsulas, right? They were, they were physically attached to the mainland. Um, and it wasn't until after those uh, uh, glaciers started melting you know, due to global warming or whatever, um, it that these uh, areas like Japan become islands where where the lower uh, areas get flooded with water and then eventually become oceans. Um, it's pretty interesting, but there were three, I think, very distinct points of contact with the mainland. There was the Sakhalin in the north, uh, Tsushima in the west, and Ryukyu in uh, the Ryukyu Islands, island chain in the south, which is kind of like near Taiwan. Um, and and you know, people basically came in waves uh, from the southeast and from the northeast Asia between something like 30,000 and 14,000 years ago. It's, uh, I think it's pretty hard to paint a good picture of the human life there because of reasons like some that, uh, you know, Henry pointed out about the volcanic soil, um, but also because of the changing topography of Japan. Remember, they got there because there was low water and they were able to cross the land bridge to get to Japan. 
but once those water levels rose, a lot of the land that people were probably living in at the time are now covered in water. Did you hear they, about the 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 underwater pyramid? By the way, yeah, I was just gonna I was just gonna bring that up. They found a pyramid like structure in the, like what 20, 30 years ago, or yep. probably in a little the, bit in further. the eighties. Yeah, in the late eighties, eighties, yeah. mm-hmm. off the coast of Taiwan, and they have zero clue where it's from or what it is. Right, that's the Yona. Let me let me reverse this. Yonaguni Jima. Uh, I think it was built by aliens, and you should Google it. It's very fascinating. People still don't know if it was man-made or if it was somehow natural. But like, if you look at that shit, it looks like a step pyramid. Why do they have to be aliens? I think it's more likely they were built by mermaid mermaid people. Well, <laughs> mer people. <laughs> mer people. Well, where do you think the mer people come from? Merman. They come from Earth. Space, bro. Dude. Space. Mer. Fish people don't come from space. They come from the deep Atlantis. Well, where do you think the Atlanteans came from? Space, bro. They come from God. I mean, where do you think God they comes come from? from? Space. They come from God. <laughs> Haven't you? Didn't you ever read The Little Mermaid as a as a, like the real Little Mermaid? No, I didn't read as a kid. <laughs> I never read the real Little Mermaid either, but I Wikipedia it, uh-huh. <laughs> so I got the basic idea of the story. You know that there was a, there was a Disney. Yeah, there's a Disney-fied movie version. called the Disney Little Mermaid, which is probably right. their biggest show, movie they did. Right, and it's all these Disney stories are based off of like an original real story, folk stories for mm-hmm. children. And the Real Little Mermaid is a very depressing, dark story that has a lot of religious undertones. Um, I encourage people to look up the real Little, Mer- Little Mermaid, but I digress. I'm going to have to. <laughs> um, where were we? We were talking about um, human life, early human life in Japan. Okay, so um, okay, so what, what do we know? What do we know about the early people in Japan? It's not a ton, admittedly, but what we can figure out, or at least, at least what experts think, is that they're mostly hunter gatherer types. And this is just based on the existing fossil records that they've been able to find uh, further inland. Apparently, they hunted things like boar and deer, which exist still to, to, till today. Uh, but also, uh, pretty interestingly, uh, big game like elephant and bison, which used to be there, uh, but they've since gone extinct due to you know, global warming and overhunting. And you know, uh, reminds me of that really early show that we um, that we did here. Remember that uh, uh, interview that we did? What was that? What was the gentleman? Dan name? Flores. Yeah, Dan Flores. Right. Talking about how all those ancient giant like animals just basically have gone extinct. Um, same thing, same thing here in, in early Japan. Um, and also, there weren't too many natural large predators at the time, so human population exploded. I mean, they do have bears and murder hornets and shit, but like you know, lions and tigers and shit that that didn't exist. Um, it's kind of amazing to think that elephant and bison existed there. I feel like there's totally. no room for them to exist. You would think, but like at the time, remember land bridge, low, you know, like that they makes mig- sense. They migrated, you know, that makes sense if they were connected. However, in the U.S., in the Americas, mm-hmm. there used to be the, the United States used to be like the savanna in Africa. Right. Prior the to Serengeti, if you will. Yeah. It used to be like the Serengeti. It used to have humongous 
predators they had like super bears and like fucking really large bears saber tooth cats and shit they had the american lion was bigger than the african lion the Mm short-nosed bear was bigger than any bear in north america probably the biggest bear that we biggest bear period yeah yeah we had the the mega sloth or a really big version of the sloth yeah um but they also just had just millions hundreds of thousands of bison and buffaloes and um, crazy giant deer and shit you know they existed mm-hmm. because of all the space in the great plains right so it's hard to imagine the space for these animals because it's not like the, the, i mean these mountain ranges have existed for millions yeah. of years well i mean they were different though you know like if you look at an asian elephant and, a, and an african elephant the african elephant is way bigger you know what i mean it's like way way bigger and that's part of, that's partly due to the space the spatial constraints so i imagine that these elephants are probably closer to like uh asian elephants than anything else but you know again it was a different topography it was a different climate it was a different everything a different ecosystem so it yeah. allowed for things like you know like elephants and bison obviously they don't exist anymore but um you know, some other bits about this is that uh uh ancient japanese people evidently formed small like family groups like extended family groups and that was super important because apparently the life expectancy was super low like most people didn't live to see 30 years old so uh you know it was important for like extended family to help raise children because a lot of the parents died pretty quickly jury is pretty much out on how exactly they lived and what their culture was like but there's still evidence of of stuff that we can make some educated guesses on like you know seasonal migration seems to be a thing but also there was some some evidence of people staying put in one spot uh one piece of evidence that they found which i thought was pretty interesting was that they found obsidian uh that was evidently traded like 150 kilometers across the sea like they found obsidian from one place that wasn't supposed to be in another place and the only way to get it over there was by a boat which means that they had boats and they were using them which is nuts. What is obsidian? What is I don't know what obsidian is. Oh, you know, it's dragon glass. <laughs> oh, <laughs> obsidian I was like is feeling it's, like it's, a moron. I'm like, should I know this? <laughs> obsidian is, is just volcanic glass, right? Okay. It's, it's a it's it's super useful for for tools. Uh, it's super sharp, so you can use it for knives and stuff like that. But it's brittle too. Uh, yeah, dragon glass. Okay, dragonstone, like what mm-hmm. to kill yeah. the night what kills the white walkers, the yeah. night king with. Excuse me. Exactly. Gotcha. Just, dragon glass um but the important bit about that is not the dragon glass it's the fact that they were using boats you know (laughs) which is crazy um and then uh, some uh, like on top of like the geographical stuff that we were talking about like how the waters increased because of you know the ice caps melting there's also um some interesting stuff it's pretty hard to get a fix on this but um you know like like you were saying before the the japanese archaeologists were like super hell-bent on on like trying to tie together things that they found with like these myths um and it's still till today really hard to do research because uh a lot of these ancient burial grounds and 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 you know finds that they find they end up either getting coded as like these natural preserves uh by the government so you can't dig and you can't learn anything more or specifically we'll talk about this later um, there's some burial mounds and stuff like that that are technically owned by the empire, by the by the emperor, and and so therefore they're forbidden land and you can't touch them. And there's still like a ton of like mystery and myths 
surrounding you know neolithic japanese history which makes it super fascinating because they don't know the answers there's more to learn than there is to know yeah well the first remnants of early japanese civilization are pottery vessels yep so up until recently it was believed that japan had they may have the old the oldest pottery but up until recently japan had the oldest pottery vessels ever found recorded Mm -hmm. in the world Mm -hmm. they they date back to about thirteen thousand bc recently i believe they found pottery china that they date back to twenty thousand years ago mm-hmm. either but way it's still fucking either old. way it's old, pretty, old old yeah it's very very old pottery um to give you some context i i don't believe pottery was showing up in the middle east um no not not anywhere not close to no. that late or that no. early in history and, and what's interesting is that it sprang up so early, you know, um, and that that this pottery is literally the start of this Jomon period, which was literally named after the cord pattern. Like they wrapped a cord around the pottery uh, to make a pattern. Um, and that word in Japanese is Jomon. <laughs> so they literally just got the name Jomon period from the pottery that they found. Um, but now the word Jomon is used to describe the people uh, of the time period, the time period itself, as well as, of course, the pottery. Um, but I think calling them Jomon specifically, it's it suggests that they're like one peoples. But yeah. in fact, yeah, they're, they're, that's not truly the case. That there were it was a pretty diverse culture set, you know, and and, and the uh, and peoples. Uh, Jomon population basically ebbed and flowed a lot over several thousand years, and. It, it's not clearly understood why, but um, maybe it's climate change, geographic conditions, things like that. Um, there, there was a big volcanic eruption around six thousand BC or so. Yeah, yeah, that was that, that was that, <laughs> that didn't that, help. <laughs> that I, they believe. I always say they believe because I can't really say I believe because right. I don't have any kind of background in anthropology. Um, but it is believed that that's why they migrated north. Because initially <laughs> during the migration, they were in in the south. They were in, south, in the south, southern part of Japan, and they mm-hmm. migrated up north to where their ancestors remain today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, just generally speaking, the, the, the regions, the climate, and other factors like that, I think, play a big role you know, in the life and the development of these ancient peoples. And so Jomon is just like a convenient catch-all term for ancient yeah. Japanese and, and people. To, and to just to stay on that point for one second, because I mm-hmm. think it's important to explain the context of a nation state, which right. we're ultimately going to try to get into, not mm-hmm. on this really episode, because we're going to be talking about early, we're talking about early civilization. Mm-hmm. However, the point is in this series is to get to the nation state. Um, and Japan ends up being a very racist place in the future. But I want to just make a point about ethnicity. So Jomon is a term used by anthropologists in the present to describe an ancient peoples. So or ancient peoples. It plural. wasn't like yeah. another group of people. Another were referring to them as the Jomon. It's not like the Chinese were referring to them as, oh, the Jomon people. Right. Or, you know, another you know, the Han Chinese or the Han dynasty was like, oh, the Jomon. Um, this is a term from anthropologists. So right. this is not an ethnic group. And I just want to 
kind of pony that, that, in on that. Yeah, that's not super, to confuse that's people. super important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Because to be considered a people's, you need to... There's really two aspects to be considered an ethnicity or a people or a group. Um, the way that we think of it is if your group identifies as that group and if other groups identify you as that group. Right. It's a so, two-way street. Right. It's a two-way mm-hmm. street. I encourage you guys to listen to our, our episode, The Invention of the Chinese People, where we talk a lot about this type of stuff. About that concept, but, for right. sure. Yeah, so, uh, so needless to say, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but no, 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 you're, you, that, that was a good point to make. Um, and, and I think this it's important to point out that there wasn't like one super culture, you know, and it wasn't even one one genetic person's there, it was multiple genetic, you know, uh, pool. You know, the, it, the makeup of the ancient Japanese people, as as far as research has been done, the te- there was this one um article, Henry, you dug this one up, it was fucking fascinating. Um, and it was how they um, they, I think it was 137 ancient skeletons and they did like DNA testing on it, on them to try and figure out like where, you know, what are these people, what are these ancient Japanese people? And, uh, it shows links to a ton of different, like Asian groups, including like Mongolic and Chinese and Korean and different types of South Asian, um, has something to do with a, a term called DNA haplogroups. I don't want to butcher it because I'm not a geneticist, but it's honestly fascinating. Look it up if you're interested. The point that I want to make there is that it wasn't a homogenous group of people. It was many types of people that just ended up in the same place and started breeding. That's And they were typically, I mean, they had different cultures as well because right. some were sea fair, some were sea people. 
see people. See people. <laughs> I'm not being perverted. I'm re- referencing it to another episode that we did on the actual sea people. The sea people. Mm-hmm. Um, but some were people who were coastal people. Some were um, inland hunter mountain people. Yep. Some were some were farming. Some yep. were some were um, they were doing not things. advanced agriculture, but they were at the very least the kind of bare bones uh basic farming what's the word the the, the, the popular one was arbor arboriculture like like farming trees like they would farm tree nuts and like you know lacquer trees and things like that um but but i guess the use of pottery in this region implies some form of sedentary life yeah totally. since since pottery is highly breakable and therefore you wouldn't be able to carry it if you were constantly on the move. Right. Totally. And and definitely the presence of pottery, you know, one suggests this sedentary lifestyle, as you pointed out, and that the Jomon settlements that they found, they actually found one that lasted like 1,500 years, somewhere between 3,500 and 2,000 BC. So, you know, but, but it's pretty diverse, right? There was, like we said before, like a lot of nomadic and a lot of like sitting in place. And also a lot of this is really hard to, to pinpoint because we can't get good data points from that early. But there's some evidence of early agriculture, as you pointed out, you know, that date back as far as 4000 BC. But things like rice or millet farming wasn't introduced uh, in Japan until a few thousand years later from, you know, China and, and Korea. J- um, Japan was actually the last Asian country to adopt the practice of rice farming. Yep. Contrary to popular belief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you think of Japan and, and rice as being synonymous with one another, but it actually wasn't the case. Um, but uh, the the Jomon, though, uh, they were still mostly hunter-gatherers, or at least the evidence that we can find suggests this. And, and they were subsisting on the land and primarily living by the coasts. You know, you'll have to remember my little bit earlier about the, the geography changing. And there was a ton of evidence, you know, that, that actually found um, that they were reliant on a lot of marine life for their food. Excuse me. Uh, So for one, um, obviously the the climate warmed so that, you know, that created more coastline, right? More water. Uh, And then that also locked them into the Japanese islands. But more importantly, it also brought huge population boost in in fish and shellfish because the water got warmer. Um, And they found... Uh, they've actually found huge ancient shell mounds, like in in Tokyo Bay. Like they found shells from when people were eating them, like giant mounds of them. Um, and uh, interesting point: they in a lot of the skeletons that they found from the Jomon people, they actually showed this like specific bone development around the ear canal, uh, which is actually extremely common among divers, which would give you the indication that they were, you know. You know, doing like free diving and like spearfishing and shit, which is pretty interesting. And not not a ton again, like I said before, is known about these Jomon people. But you know um, what they have found, I think, is pretty interesting. Um, what one little bit that I found kind of neat was shamanism and rituals, and like all this special like burial practices, and they had like stone circles, almost like Stonehenge, even snake worship and. For this part, I kind of want to put on my little tinfoil hat. So there, there are these things, and I, I encourage you to, to you know, if you're listening, to, to Google it. 
Um, they're these little figurines called Dogu, D-O-G-U, and they straight up 100% look like spacemen. Uh, Henry, I asked you to Google it before we started recording. What's your take on it? So if you guys have played the game Zelda Breath of the Wild, um, the Dogu is what they based the little shrines on. So the guys, you know, the guys that hand you the orb thing, you know what I'm talking about? Whenever they're also related to the Haniya, which is uh, part of the Kofun. But yeah, they're, they're definitely in the same vein. But if you look at these things, though, they look like little spacemen. Like they have like big old bug eyes and like bulb heads. And <clears throat> they look like they're wearing spacesuits. Look it up. It, they, it's look a little, to... they, they do look a little bit um, E.T.-ish. They look like dudes wearing spacesuits. Like, like big puffy spacesuits. Look it up. I'm looking it's it up right now. It looks. It's spelled D O G U. If yeah. you want to join this search, Dogu. And yeah, they're pretty cool. They're neat. They're neat little trinkets. Yep. Also, tinfoil hat. They did this sp- snake worship, which I think is related to lizard people. Maybe they're the ones that built the pyramid off the coast of Japan. I don't know. Might be stretching a little bit, but don't rule it out. All right, back to reality. Uh, So we're talking about these Jomans, the Jomon peoples, and we're using that loosely. But if we were to to like pin a close relative to the Jomon people, it'd probably be the Ainu people who live today. Uh, They're currently in the northern uh, areas of Hokkaido, uh, and also on the disputed island chain of uh, the Sakhalin between Russia and Japan, which I really hope we do end up talking about in the later episodes of, of Japan, because uh, like I didn't know that they're that they had this like beef going on between the two of them in those islands. Um, maybe we'll we'll do a little bit of research on that later. Um, but the the Jomon quote unquote people and the Ainu they they share a lot of physical features. And the DNA and, and, and stuff like that. And and interestingly enough, um, the Ainu people have only recently been recognized as a native Japanese group. Uh, that was in 97, believe it or not. So not even that long ago. What was the reason why they didn't recognize them prior? Um, racist reasons. They just didn't want to admit that there was like a culture that was... That predates the, to the, region the Yamato to people. The, yeah. Like the Japanese speaking ethnic group. Yeah. Because let's like, while we're on the topic, like I'm, I don't want to make this about like appearance, right? Because like you know, ethnicity and, and DNA and all that stuff is, is different, but you kind of have to bring this up for this one. You, you mentioned it earlier. Japan goes through a bit of a racist bit through its history. Um, they go through more than just one. Yeah, so and this is kind of important, right? The 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 Ainu people look different from what you would expect a Japanese person to look like. Nevertheless, they they are in fact indigenous to Japan, or at least as indigenous as it comes, right? And as a result, ten thousand years is, is indigenous in my book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, as a result of looking different and not only that but they're kind of like 
I don't want to put down Ainu people, but they, they have more, um, how do I say this diplomatically? They are, their culture is, is less Western and less modernized than, than their, their like quote unquote Japanese or Yamoto, uh, counterparts. And so I think as a result, they got dominated quite a bit. They've been relegated to like the furthest reaches of Japan, even though they're, they used to basically be all over the, the northern area of Japan. And they're just kind of looked at as like second class, which is also important. We're going to talk about like the class systems, you know, in that were set up in early Japanese um, periods. But yeah, man, it's 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 racism, <laughs> to be very honest. And then they just started doing a bunch of this you know, DNA work and learning that all of these old Jomon people, actually that uh, I knew people are closest to the, to the, to the original Jomons. So they kind of had to, <laughs> you know? Well, let's talk about the people who came in um, because we got to talk about like when the second big migration to Japan starts, because yeah. there's another one in around 400 BC of the Yayoi people, right? Yayoi, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was it was basically a caravan of illegal immigrants who came over from the mainland in search of a better life. And that was my joke for the Yayoi invasion. But for real, um, they, they call it the Yayoi invasion because so many people came over to Japan. It was like an invasion. And like most ancient migrations, we're not really sure exactly where these people came from. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's totally unclear. Uh, you know, the Yayoi gets its name specifically from a district in Tokyo where guests, you know, go figure, they found a specifically different reddish type of pottery. <laughs> the ancient Japanese really do like their pottery and, and the uh, anthropologists who find them uh, love to name shit after pottery. Um and rice too. Uh, and seriously, this is when rice starts becoming cultivated at scale uh, and sticks around. So these people, so what, from what I've read, no one really knows. There's arguments all the time about who these people are and where they were from. There's some theories that they came from um, from Southeast Asia, from like Laos yeah, and Vietnam and those areas. There's other arguments that they came from Korea. There's other arguments that there wasn't really even a migration. They were just um, the Jomen, but which doesn't really make sense given all the DNA testing. But yep. that isn't like another theory. Um, what I thought sounded most feasible to me, and this is not the this is this is not the opinion of an expert. This is just someone who a casual history fan Normie. looking at all the theories presented and the one that made the most sense to me is that these were refugees of the wars in china yeah that were going on very likely. during the warring states yep very likely that poured in as the Qin dynasty was uniting together mm -hmm. yeah very likely very very likely and because and they're coming from because the I think the most agreed upon term, the one that's most likely, is that they came from North China, so right. Korea, Northern China, Through the Nigeria. Korean Peninsula. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's why I think Japan believed that they had some type of right to Manchuria during World War. Well, they invaded in thirty-one, 
but in the 1930s, mm-hmm. um, because they were like, oh, well, you know, our, our people come from there. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, and, that's what I and, felt. And they were distinctly different too. Like the, the, these, these people, the Yayoi people were lighter, <clears throat> taller, uh, and they also brought over a bunch of new shit, things like iron, bronze, and rice. Here's a fun conspiracy theory, Henry. You, you, you ready for this one? I think this might be the last. No, I've got one more after this, but this one's Sure. Fun. Okay. So there's this fun conspiracy theory that posits that around the same time, right, we're talking about, you know, the, the 700-ish or the between 1000 and 400 BC is when, when the Yayoi started coming over. Um, but around the same time, the Assyrian Empire had scattered the tribes of Israel. And there's this idea that many of them went east and that some of them ended up settling in China and eventually went over Japan with the Ayoi invasion. So is this like a reason to create Jewish settlements in Japan? Is that what they're using this as? <laughs> I don't know, man, but maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> well, hey. There's some shit that's that's pretty interesting that they found. So one of them was that uh, there's a ton of similarities between Jimu, the you know that first uh, emperor of Japan, and Moses um, in their stories. There's a, there's this like weird like it's kind of racist idea that there's these Portuguese Jewish racial features on Japanese some Japanese people, and that that those are like the the Portuguese Jewish Japanese people. Or something and and also they've cited some some similarities between shintoism which was the you know ancient um religion and judaism that that part doesn't make a ton of uh, sense to me but there was some in- very fascinating finds and this was around bronze weapons that sprang up at the time during the yayoi invasion and there they share some pretty similar like and very interesting similarities to the ones that were used in ancient israel and in in you know mesopotamia at the at the time um so i mean you know trade happened across the entire world but we're talking about the very ancient world and now suddenly some of these bronze weapons share some pretty interesting similarities with one another around the same time that these peoples were scattered from you know the yeah the area so i don't know maybe well, there's Maybe. another theory. There's another theory about Jesus coming to Japan. Oh yeah, yeah, there is. But that that didn't happen until later, of course. That's an even funner theory. So the the Jesus apparently had a brother, and Jesus's brother was the one that got nailed to the cross, apparently. And Jesus went back to Japan, and I'm saying back because apparently he spent a lot of his time between the age of twelve and thirty, you know, the lost years in Japan evidently uh and apparently he went all the way to japan after after uh his brother got crucified and he married a woman and had three daughters and apparently there is a line of people who claim to be descended of of jesus and again this kind of like you know, like plays into the idea of japanese people having like divine descendants you know um you know from izanagi and izanami um, or from Amaterasu, you know, um, that one's fucking fascinating. There's like a, a shrine to the to the 
to the like burial site of Jesus Christ in Japan. It's so fascinating. Jesus is actually Japanese. E- even better, Japanese people are Jewish, and that's why Jesus came back to Japan. Okay. You see that? That's that's the connection there. Uh, I think we found the mystery of who the Jomen were. Um, I think something that's important to note, and this is going to be a continuous theme in Japanese history, is the... So bronze, iron, and agriculture revolutions all entered Japan at the same time period, or mm-hmm. relatively within the same centuries. Um this resulted in rapid modernization. Yeah. Um, and this is a reoccurring theme. So I say a reoccurring theme because later on in the 1800s, Japan goes through the process of modernization in a very short period of time. It only takes them about 40 years or so to do about 200 years of modernization, what took the European countries two centuries to do they do in about three to four decades where they um change their political system yep they completely change their military to where not only are they defending themselves against western powers but they're defeating them in wars mm-hmm. they defeat russia in a war very shortly after their modern modernization process they also defeat i mean they defeated china before which was a large large much larger country um, and you see that same theme going back into 2,300 years ago where they are getting all of this technology all at once. It's like steroids. Right. Like I'm listening to, I just listened to Dan Carlin's, um, I just started listening to Dan Carlin's podcast on the Japanese empire. And I, I just, this is the first episode I listened to in the series and something, a really good analogy that he uses for the nation state is that. Japan is it was a society on steroids, mm-hmm. like they took steroids to catch up. Performance enhancing drugs, 100%. but the steroids ultimately were um, played a huge. They had a huge consequence in their in their health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They killed that government as it was. Yep. Yep. And and but I think. Go ahead. Oh yeah, I was just gonna kind of pick, continue on to what the point you were making. Um, the invasion kind of moves gradually. Yeah. Like mostly in, in like the South and the Southwest, as opposed mm-hmm. to the North where effectively the, the Jomen are at this time. And it, it kind of creates this culture gap between the North and the South. Um, given that, you know, the agriculture and technology revolutions that are going down in the southern part of Japan. And I guess this is where you really see the split in cultures at, in this time period. Mm-hmm. And, this and is why the there's the Innu in the south, in the north, excuse me. Right. And also the ethnic makeup there too, right? This is kind of the, this is the, the ancient start of like this split between like the Ainu and the Yamato people today or the, you know, the Joman and the uh, and the um, Yayoi, you know, in the south, um, you can make those comparisons here. Um, but in the south, there was very distinct social hierarchies that started popping up as a result of all these changes. And and it, I, I want you to think of it this way: so, metals, uh, as we said before, 
uh, a lot of resources are, are rare in Japan, right? Because it is an island chain. Uh, natural resources are sparse, but metals were even more sparse. Um, and so the ownership of metal ore or metal items created a super high status for you. You know, like, like it's literally gold, you know? And rice farming, which is new and well... I mean, they had been farming rice there for a little while, but like not at this at the rate uh, or the scale that they that they start doing now. You know, rice farming starts to centralize control over populations, right? Because they have all the food now, uh, and it also created more permanent settlements. And both of those factors and and a bunch more put together basically played into this creation of the idea of territory in Japan. And these territories needed to be defended and prosperous territories needed to expand to maintain growth. In this period alone, the population grew to 2 million, which we're talking about. That is a, that is a nut stat for as small as the, as the region that they were in. And this obviously creates a ton of tension and conflict and ultimately war. And it also created this kind of feedback loop, right? So if you had metals and rice... That meant you had metal weapons and for killing people and food to feed your soldiers that killed people. And that won battles. So this really helped to solidify this social hierarchy as well. So they created these social and intertribal kind of rankings. Uh, and you know, they, they had these customs that even till today, you know, or, or at least through the 19th century st stuck around, which was... You know, if you are walking down a road and, you know, you see someone of a higher social rank coming, you know, uh, in the opposite direction as you, like towards you, you step out of the way and you bow because you're a lower social rank. And that is some, like, aspects of that still continue till today. And then there was a ton of other developments, things like silk and glassmaking and a bunch of other specialized trade and, and so they started actually physically trading goods and commodities uh, among these tribal areas to help to distribute resources a bit. Um, but also, like, if you just weren't fortunate enough to, you know, where your tribe didn't sit on top of an iron mine, then, you know, you had to figure something else out to, to survive in that economy. And what this, what this created was uh, tribalization of the Yayoi people and, and it led to chiefdoms and small kingdoms and, and, a, and, and a bunch of, you know, everything I just described. Well, let's jump into the written history, um, more specifically how China looked at them. So all the written history of this period comes from the Han dynasty in China. Right. Right. So they're not. There's no written history that's coming out of Japan. It's all coming out of the uh, spectators, right. which are the Han Dynasty, which um, has some delegates and explorers, or really whatever people who are reporting back to the to the Han Dynasty court, like, hey, what look what's going on over here? Mm -hmm. But what is written in their ancient texts about Japan is. It's it's kind of humorous. It's yeah. kind of funny what they what they write. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I guess they're they're shocked that Japan is so decentralized because mm -hmm. they have this imperial system. They have all these. They you know they're coming off this war where they basically just united 
Um, it wasn't really, it wasn't the Han dynasty, it was the Qin dynasty before them, but they're holding together this massive, super state, massive this empire, massive yeah. super state mm-hmm. that was bounded by blood and bounded by all these crazy alliances um, by Emperor Qin and then inherited by the Han dynasty. And they're like, why, how are they so discombobulated? Yeah. Meanwhile, across the river, <laughs> look at these crazy ass people over there. <laughs> and I'm not sure what the populations were at this time. Um, well, China's population was giant. Um, and at the time it was um, the, the Yayoi people was about 2 million if you don't include the um, Jomon in the north. Um, but the Chinese definitely eclipsed them in population. But again, it's, oh, it's all well, about. Of course, popul- I'm just wondering by how much. Was it was it 20 times? Was there like 40 uh, million people I, in China I, at I this don't, time? I don't want to. I don't want to get quoted on that. Let's let's call it like 20 times. It's just something some ridiculously large. They had way 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 more people. But the the, the real the real issue was the population density. Japan's really small, you know, and like people per square foot, <laughs> per square mile in Japan was like much higher. Uh, if, you, if, if you take interesting um, geography trick, if you take a not a Mercator map, like a real map, you put Japan and you, you compare it to the United States, it's about the size of the East Coast. It stretches between all of its islands. It stretches from um, Florida to uh, Canada. Mm-hmm. But the catch is, is that only about 25 percent of the land there is livable. Right. It's all mountains. It's, right. It really is all mountain ranges. So I, I don't I don't want to beat a dead horse, but it's just so important when talking about defining. Because ultimately, I think the thing that defines culture and culture defines political systems is the geography. I think that's the mm-hmm. number one thing that defines what how a culture turns out is sure. what are they living like what what are they what, what are, are they the working circumstances with? Yeah. that they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Are we dealing with trade and water and trade and water? Are we dealing with like trade routes and um, and other cultures and um, merchants and are we a merchant society? Are we a mountain society? Um, are we a desert society? I'm just like labeling different. Yeah, totally. Not, I'm not doing a good job at this. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's mostly right. Um Maybe not you the get desert the, part, the, get the point I'm trying to make, though, <laughs> yeah. is that where you live ultimately defines what your culture values are. Right. And How your, your culture develops. Your culture develops based on the geographic distinctions of the particular area that you live in. Right. So people who are by water sources or river or river sources are more likely to be invested in trade. People who are in the uh, Great Plains area, like a big plains area or grasslands like in Mongolia are more likely to be really awesome with horses, you know? Right. Animal husbandry. <laughs> animal husband. Yeah, they're, they're going to be really into animal husbandry. <laughs> you can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update. 
wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, uh, you made a good point, and we we we, um, we we should get back to it actually, though, um, because you were saying how uh, China basically we, we get we understand everything we know about these this particular bit of Yayoi history from China. And there's this one text called the Han Shu. Jesus, I fell so off. Yeah, I, no, I don't know cool. how I ended up where I was. <laughs> No, no, no that, that, it's fine. But this this part's funny. Um, so the Han Shu, which is the history of the Han, um, they talk about the land of Wa, which is what they referred to Japan uh, to at the time as, which roughly translates to the land of the dwarfs, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. Um, and they, they, you know, they, they talk about how it's comprised of 100 kingdoms and they're just like so flabbergasted at how, how is it that they have, that you have 100 kingdoms in such a small little like island. Um, and then uh, later uh, in the Wei Chi, uh, which is the history of the Wei, uh, there's a section on the quote, Eastern barbarians and they included the Yayoi Japanese people. And they specifically talk about one of those kingdoms and they call them the the, I'm going to butcher this in, in Chinese, but the Sumatai, which in Japanese translates to the Yamatai. And these people are really fascinating, and I kind of want to talk about them um, for a bit. So these Yamatai people were uh, initially ruled by this like weird shaman queen lady, and her name was Himiko. And basically, she was into like magic and shit. And she was apparently super paranoid and she lived permanently in this big ass fortress. And it was apparently guarded by a hundred men and she was served by a thousand women and one guy. <laughs> Lucky guy. <laughs> and the um, one guy was like her personal messenger. Like he did yeah. all the outside communication. Right. He did all the talking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and she ended up um, uh, uh, continuing a common practice uh, that was already in place uh, among the uh, uh, the Yayoi, which was sending uh, tributes to the emperor in China. And and people in Japan, uh, like uh, chieftains and stuff like that, they would send tributes to the emperor of China because they're trying to appease him and they're trying to be recognized as a ruler by him, like to, you know, get brownie points and stuff. But this woman, she got a bonus because the emperor not only ended up recognizing her as, as the sovereign of her particular territory, but he recognized her as the sovereign of the entire land of Wa. And so they, they you know, established this like fun relationship where they're sending gifts back, to, back and forth to one another. And, you know, she's getting like iron and gold and stuff like that. And she's sending him like slaves um, and silk uh, and other textiles. Um, but this elevated status for uh, Mimiko meant uh, that when she died, she needed a big ass tomb, right? Because she's, you know, gangster. And uh, apparently it was 100 paces wide, whatever that means. Um, and these were called Kofun. Kofun. And they're basically raised mound 
tombs, like big dirt tombs, but they're super, super interesting. And I've, this is, I think the last conspiracy theory I'll bring up on the show, um, this is more ancient alien theories, but they're kind of like ancient Egyptian tombs or even probably more like, like old Nordic, uh, uh, mound tombs. And the thing about them is that they look like, like a keyhole. If you look at them from the sky, they they look like like a key. Google is Kofun, K-O-F-U-N. When you look down on them from like a plane or a drone or something like that, they look like a keyhole, and they're very ornate, and they're often laid out in interesting patterns. And you can you can really really only see these patterns from the sky. So like, who are they making the patterns for? It's for the. It aliens. does look like a a keyhole right and what's How about re- that what's really interesting about this is that apparently nobody can excavate the kofun to learn more about them why because they're all owned by the by the emperor their imperial property it's it's a no-go it's all a big conspiracy this is interesting and then from this period, from this Kofun period, there's also those Haniwa statues, which are also related to the, you know, the, the shrine dudes in in um, in uh, in the Breath Legend of the Zelda. Wild. Yeah, Breath of the Wild. Yeah, the Haniwa statues. I hope you guys are as big as dorks as we are. <laughs> then if you're not, it's going to go right over your head. Right. Um, so yeah, they it, are. I an- gotcha. A- ancient, ancient, a- dude. This is all aliens. I'm telling you, man. This is, this one is a day I want to know gonna, what's in the fucking tombs. <laughs> you know? One day we're actually going to do an episode on ancient aliens. And I'm hoping that we get the most convincing ancient alien um, enthusiast that we well, can like, get. I want, I want Giorgio Sucolos, the guy with the crazy hair with the meme when he says, like, aliens. No, I don't want to create. I want a guy who's going to, like, <laughs> convince me that it's real uh maybe um he's kind of old i hope he doesn't older like from x-files uh, maybe eric von daniken is he an ancient alien person yeah he's written so many books uh chariots of the gods that's a good one um yeah he's he's an interesting dude but he's old old so we'd have to get i've him never really read anything on ancient aliens i usually just roll my eyes and look like oh <laughs> it's fascinating <God."> man <laughs> you know i uh, sound honestly my critique of it is it comes almost from like a left wing that it sound it's not just to me it doesn't sound like a left wing but it comes out sounding very left wingy yeah that i feel I mean, like it's kind of racist i feel i, I do bit. feel like yeah. it is a little bit it it's, discredits it's, these it's cultures and their is. ability to do things. It it is definitely diminutive, but I what I find fascinating about it is that, you know, much like with this Japanese history where there's more questions than we have answers, you know, there's a lot of things in in, you know, ancient history that we learn and, you know, we dig it up with archaeology and it's super fascinating, but like it loses the, you know, magical mystery to it, right? And so ancient aliens is just kind of like that little that that itch that scratch that, you know, scratches the the itch of, of, you know, that mysterious, magical, you know, uh, uh, greater than, you know, humankind thing. You know, it's it's fun. It's just fun. To me, 
to me though the truth is just is is more interesting the oh, fact yeah, that these people were happened. so advanced so early on in the process of modernization is just incredible to me when I, what what really piques my interest is when you see when you find things from a really ancient culture so i'm not talking about like ancient rome i'm right. talking about something from a, a culture from a thousand bc right that three thousand year old BC. culture right you know um and you find something that looks like it could have been made relatively re recently right and you're like how the fuck did you build this like how did you build like how did you build the pyramids how did you build the all these structures in um ancient mesopotamia it's mm -hmm. just amazing to me because i couldn't figure out any of any of this stuff i would never be a person who could <laughs> figure out an irrigation system yeah i yeah. could never figure out i wouldn't be able to figure out the wheel i'd be like whoa <laughs> this is a little too uh i'm going i'm getting old too fast this wheel thing is uh like the Pretty wheel nuts. to me would be like you know TikTok. i just wouldn't <laughs> get the technology <laughs> yeah yeah Anyway, let's 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 wrap up on on this the Yamatai kingdom because I think it kind of leads into our, our, the next period that I want to talk about before we break um, for the episode. But you know, it's it's not super clear where the Yamatai kingdom was. A lot of experts link it to the Yamato uh, area in the Nara Basin. Um, they're probably the same, but it's not very very clear. But what's important to know about the Yayoi people. Uh, or the Yayoi period in general that we've been talking about, is that it marks the transition out of this Neolithic period to a period of actually recorded history. So prehistory to history. And there were huge leaps forward from hunting and gathering to cultivation and from tools like stone tools to metal tools. And, you know, there was fixed settlements to social uh, uh uh, and social hierarchies. Um, it was basically the makings of a state. Like this is really when we're starting to think about like the Japanese state, or at this point it was called the Yamato um, state. The first government. The first government. government. The, f the first like real recognized government of Japan. Right. Was right. the Yamato kingdom. Right. And this is sometimes also known as the Kofun period because it, it, it refers to the period um, where they created all of these massive key-shaped burial mounds that we were just talking about a bit ago. But obviously it's called the Yamato period because of the Yamato state in the Nara Basin. And you know, the dates and hard facts about this, again, are pretty unreliable because of reasons that we've already described. But the first verified emperor of the Yamato period was uh, Suijin. Uh, and he died probably around 300 AD. Um, some people think that Suijin was the leader of a group of invaders from Korea called the Horse Riders, which I choose to believe because that's a fascinating story. Um, so Suijin and the uh, early Yamato people, uh, they actually are pretty cool. They, they used um, politics and negotiation more than they did military battles to gain power and grow. And they preferred to incorporate local chieftains and like basically give them like titles and power 
uh, and and high levels of in, in their hierarchy, basically to make them feel special and also so that they have a have like skin in the game for the uh, expansion of the Yamato Empire. It's very very fascinating because before that it was just like try and crush your enemy, and for these guys, it was almost like uh, the opposite of if you can't beat them, join them. It was more like um, if you can't get them to join you, beat them. If that makes sense to you. Um, but the Yamato people, uh, I think, you know, th this government was definitely among the most powerful of the clans that existed uh, during this time. But it wasn't until about the 6th century that the Yamato stood out as, you know, the juggernaut that it would become. Um, that's when other rulers in the region would start paying them tribute instead of everyone paying the Chinese tribute. Um, but the Yamato were also instrumental in, in the promotion of Buddhism in Japan. And, and you know, among many things, you know, religion is super important for the development of a nation state, um, mostly because of, uh, you know, the shared ideology that comes behind it. Um, and the story behind this is pretty interesting. It's also in, in indicative of, you know, the cultural and ethnic makeup of, of the Japanese people, the Yamato people of the time. Actually, a lot of their high-class families in the Yamato kingdom, uh, specifically the Soga clan, uh, were actually originally Korean, uh, and they had this—they already had this affinity to Buddhism, which was already popular on the mainland. Um, but specifically, these Buddhist scholars introduced Buddhism um, from the Pakchi kingdom in Korea, which was the southernmost um, kingdom in Korea at the time. There were three warring kingdoms, uh, and. Sometime in the mid-6th century, that's when they came over. About 100 years before that, those scholars from that same kingdom had come over to Japan and introduced the practice of writing. So writing became a thing in Japan, uh, and the Yamato ate that shit up. Uh, so writing helped the spread of Buddhism. And Buddhism They ate that shit up, man. Writing, that's... <laughs> shit's awesome <laughs> it was true dude this is like we actually started seeing like an explosion of writing coming out of japan at this point they really liked it they were like oh this is cool you know look at this shit i could write down ideas that's awesome you know i mean i've been uh, obsessed with this show called the last kingdom i keep on talking about it where i uh -huh. i i can I've converted some people to this show. A lot uh -huh. of fans have reached out to me like, yo, that last kingdom's awesome. And they'll even admit like the acting's not great, but it's still awesome. Like, <laughs> but there's a part in the show where one of the Viking warlords, he discovers um, all of, of uh, King Alfred's like scrolls. And he's mm -hmm. like, this is magic. This is magic. I must learn this magic. <laughs> yeah. He eats that shit up. It's writing, man. It's it's awesome, but so Buddhism writing was important because it helped spread Buddhism, and Buddhism was important because it was seen as politically advantageous. So it it helped create this like national ideology for the Yamato Nation, and it also helped give some itself as a as a kingdom some genuine credibility among the Chinese and and their counterparts on the mainland, uh, because they were all Buddhist at the time, and Yamato wanted to. Well, in, in one way, Yamato wanted to prevent invasion <laughs> from the more, the definitely more powerful Chinese empire. Uh, but it also just generally wanted to learn everything that it could that it thought would be useful for itself as a growing nation. I'm referring to the Yamato like kingdom like it's a person, but it's expedient for me. Um, so I guess what you need to know from this bit is that, you know, when you think about Japan, a lot of the times when you think about old 
history of Japan, you might think, oh yeah, that they were a closed off nation and, you know, they're their own little special thing. And, and that is true for certain periods of J- Japanese history, but for this period, they were so open. They were so open that they were literally like copying off of each other, like copying off of their neighbors, like stealing as much as they can to make themselves better. And that's kind of fascinating because it really developed the, this ideology in Japan of, 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 of adopting the best parts of all of the cultures you can get your hands on, which I think is pretty cool. Which mirrors the future. Yep. And the, the future being during the, the Meijing restoration mm-hmm. in the 1800s. And I'm going to keep on bringing this back because I think it's really useful. We're trying to. We're learning. It's stuff. fun to go through the early. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. to, it's fun to go through the early history. And like, it's really important. The goal is to tie this into a narrative of how a nation state is built. So we're looking for links and similarities between modern Japanese culture and ancient Japanese culture. And this really is similar to when the Japanese were modernizing and they were copying all these Western countries. So Mm -hmm. they were picking and choosing the best of each Western country. So Prussia, oh, Prussia has a great um, standing army. We're going to copy them. Britain, Britain has the best navy. We're going to copy them. France has a good political system. We're going to copy them. So they're picking and choosing the best European country at, you know, whatever they want to improve on. And they're just basically just sending their Japanese advisors. They're learning how to do it. And they're going back. The Japanese advisors are going back and they're teaching, you know, their school how to do it. Like the Europeans are doing it at this time. Mm -hmm. But this period here, it sounds like a very similar period where they're very eager to modernized because at this point they're behind like let's quite frankly japan the 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 islands of japan are behind china and korea yep by a lot yeah and by a lot like like a lot a lot remember they were were referred to as like the the weirdos the barbarians over there that like you know squabble over like the little bit of land you know um and and they developed this really interesting relationship with Korea and the Korean kingdoms. At the time, there were three. Uh, they got really tight with the southern two. Uh, so uh, basically, it picked up Buddhism from them. It picked up writing from them. But they also did a lot of trade with Korea, especially around iron ore. So this is where they're getting all the iron to create the, the weapons of war that they need to you know, basically uh, consolidate power on the island. Um, and... They had some conflicts with the northernmost kingdom in Korea called Silla, but you know, I guess some things never change. North Korea versus Japan, you know. Um, but uh, this one dude, uh, Prince Shotoku, uh, who was half Soga, remember the Soga people were originally from Korea, um, he uh, basically uh, re-established missions to China after it had reunified under the Tang Dynasty. Keep in mind, like. China was much bigger, but it went through some warring periods. We covered a lot of it um, uh, in our prior episodes. But at this point, the Han Dynasty had had fallen and then reunified under the Tang Dynasty. And at this point, Prince Shotoku, uh, around 600 or uh, so-ish, he started sending emissaries over to China to start learning stuff from China. And the one cool thing that he pulled over was this social hierarchy based on hats. Like the type of hat you wore told you like what social hierarchy you were. 
It was like a, I don't know, it was cute. Um, so Shotoku, Shotoku, uh, he also drafted this thing called the 17 Article Constitution in 604, which basically tried to establish a central government. And it was very much Chinese inspired. It heavily drew from Confucianism. Uh, and it was probably less of a constitution and more of like a guiding set of principles than anything. But, um, you know, it was all about like harmony and loyalty to the imperial line and all this like flowery nonsense. But they, they definitely were looking to like adopt very Chinese things. Um, in 645, there was a coup led by um, the Fuji, Fujiwara no Komatari. Uh, that was 614 to 699 or something like that. Um, and they changed a lot of things, but they didn't change uh, the idea of promoting everything Chinese in Japan. Uh, and they put in a bunch of reforms uh, based on the Chinese model of central government. And these were called the Taika or the Great Change Reforms of 645. So a couple things that they did, uh, there's a lot of things they did. They had major uh, land reform. So they nationalized land. So patties were basically allocated by the government. So every six years, every free adult male, I'm going to put this out there because there's a lot of slavery at the time. So if you're free and you're an adult male, every six years, you're going to get about 0.3 acres and females got 0.2 acres. Also at the time they had multiple like wives and stuff like that. So it would behoove you to have as many wives as possible because then you get more land. Um, other uh, reforms that they did was like taxation uh, in the form of produce and not labor. So like uh, they wouldn't tax the work. They would tax what you created. Um, and uh, restructuring like hierarchical ranks. Uh, like in one one in particular, they established a... Um, uh, oh, I'm skipping around here. But uh, they surveyed uh, uh, a lot of the um, various local officials uh, because there was a lot of like corruption going on. So they first try to figure out, all right, are you actually the rank that you say you are? Um, and two, uh, are you doing corruption? And if you are, they're going to kill you uh, and try and eliminate corruption. So that was pretty interesting. Um, what else? Oh, they established a permanent capital. That was a big one. Um, at the time, it kept bouncing around. They put this capital at Naniwa, which is present day Osaka. Um, but it, it only stuck around for a couple of years. But that was like super important to centralize power. This um, is a common theme. The capital of Japan f frequently changes. Yeah. Like a lot. Throughout his history, a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, what else? Uh, oh, yeah, they they took people's guns. <laughs> well, they didn't have guns. They, they took people's unauthorized weapons, uh, which is very liberal. Um, yeah, so uh, a, lot of, a lot of very Chinese things, uh, you know, these people put into place. And through this Yamato period, the population grew again uh, by about two to three million. Um, and... Uh, here was the stat. Uh, I actually wrote it down. China's population has had more than 60 million at the time. And we're talking about the Yayoi having two to three million. So that's orders of magnitude more, <laughs> you know, uh, huge, huge difference. Um, but yeah, I mean, even still, though, Japan's um, Japan's population at the time in the seventh century was way way bigger than any of the european nations any of the european populations at the time so it was still formidable in that respect well 
what's interesting is that even prior to them modernizing, and when I say modernizing, I mean modernizing into um, moder- their modernization process in the 1800s, Tokyo was the largest city in the world, even right. prior to the West coming. Mm-hmm. It, it, so they already had a huge population centers, and I guess you can see the reason why a lot of these population centers in Japan and Asia, Japan and Asia, Japan and China and India, why they're so big, why they have, why their population is so big is because they started out with a big population. <laughs> yeah. It's a large part. Mm-hmm. So they just kind of like accumulated it, kind of like a 401k, you know what I mean? Just <laughs> yeah. like accumulated over time. Mm-hmm. Um, Damn, we are at... Yeah, I, I guess we can kind of stop here because we're almost at a, an hour and thirty. If we if we lob off that first couple of minutes of us bullshitting with each other, but I think you know what do we learn? We learned about you know the creation myth of Japan. We talked about the geographical implications of Japan. We talked about the early inhabitants of Japan. We talked about the Jomon specifically uh, and who they were, uh, and we talked about the Yayoi who eventually took over. Uh, most of southern Japan. And then eventually we got onto the Kofun or the Yamato period where we really start seeing the building and the creation point of a nation state, you know, for Japan. And I think we I think we did a pretty good job at setting up some themes, you know, for for future episodes um, about it. Uh, do you have any closing remarks on this? I'm excited to dive deeper into this. Um, so we're soon going to get into Samurai. Um, samurai. I guess that will be one of our next steps, but um, you know, we're this is this app, this series is a working progress. This is the first time we're doing something like this, um, so we're just hoping that it, we're just trying to make the most entertaining and thought provoking thing that we can make. Um, the China stuff was a was a a uh, experiment that kind of sort of turned out like this, and, and we're trying to replicate it and, and just not only entertain you guys, but hope you, hopefully uh, get you interested in these types of things. But, I mean, that's all I have to really add to it. Um, I just want to thank everyone again for, for joining us today to another ep- joining us today for another episode of Bro History. Man, it is 11.30. I feel like it's 2 in the morning right now. I am tired. <laughs> but, um, Thanks again for your attention. It always means so much uh, that you guys continue to tune in every week. Um, make sure to rate and review the podcast. Rating and reviewing the podcast is the number one way to help us grow. Um, and you guys have been awesome rating it and, and, and leaving us reviews. Um, in the past two months, we've received about 50 reviews. So um, keep on Huge. doing that. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. keep on keep on rating reviewers. Rating and reviewing the show, it really helps us um, continue the momentum and continue to grow. Um, if you want to continue supporting us as well, you can also join our Patreon where we um, put additional content up. Um, we're going to post our weird banter we were having prior <laughs> to the start of the episode on the Patreon if you want to get a sense of what we need to do to prepare for the show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what do you mean? What do you need to do? What do you need to do to prepare for the show? Trust me, it's it's a working progress. Um, and also, I just want to announce, we were on the show War and Conquest last week. 
um, Neil, who runs the show over there and who's the host, um, you know, he had us on and we had a great time on the show. Um, we are going to play a little preview of his show um, so you guys can uh, listen to what it's about. Um, right now, he's currently in a series about Vlad the Impaler. It's really interesting. He does a great job breaking down the um, origins of the Ottoman Empire and their um, invasion of the Balkans and, and the resistance movements that came out of the Balkans. And he focuses on Vlad the Impaler. So it's really interesting. We're going to play a little bit of a preview of the episode that we were on. Um, I encourage you to go to War and Conquest to get the full episode and listen to the rest of his content. Um, anything else? No, man. I think that's that thing's pretty good. All right. All right, guys. Uh, thanks again for listening. We will see you next week. And peace be with you. Peace. So who was Mehmed II, and why did he have to fight Vlad III Dracula? If we believe in Machiavellian principles, the confrontation was inevitable. And I, I feel like this really fits well with the theme of the show we're going to do next, because Machiavelli once said famously that war is only to be avoided at your disadvantage, meaning that sooner or later your ne- meaning that sooner or later your neighbors are going to get envious of your territory or resources or have some imagined or real insult that is going to cause them to invade your borders. So, in that vein, you may as well just attack them first, because the attacking army almost always has the advantage, especially if the receiving end of that is not really prepared for it. And so, in between the years 1460 and 1461, Vlad the Impaler would do just about everything in his power to antagonize the Ottoman Empire into attacking him. Which may seem like a really idiotic idea, considering the Ottoman Empire was one of the most dominant civilizations in the world at the time, with possibly the most experienced soldiery and cohesive unit in, well, world history, actually. The Janissaries don't get enough credit for just how skilled they were at killing people when they were together. I mean, one-to-one against European knights, the Janissaries probably lose. But as a cohesive unit, the Janissaries were almost unbeatable. I say almost because we just covered the Siege of Belgrade, and we saw how if you have enough really pissed-off peasants in the right situation, you can beat the Janissaries. But nine times out of ten, when the Janissaries are sent in, it meant the destruction or retreat of the opposing army. But Vlad the Impaler realized that Mehmed II was bent on world conquest. After all, he was a man who was raised in the shadow of the classics like Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great, who believed that he was better than them and in a better position to achieve the ultimate dream of world It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.